this project was a wake-up call that the major transformation that we need to affect in our society to take on the climate crisis requires capacity building in every nook and cranny, and that we don't just have effective mitigation or adaptation strategies and actions unless we've educated and trained people and supported them in building their own communities of practice to learn from each other as the ways and means of taking on these wicked problems. Hello, I'm Denise Withers, and you've just joined The Quest for Good, an interview series where innovators from coders to CEOs share stories about how they overcome obstacles to create breakthrough change. If you are looking for a better way to take your work to the next level, then stay tuned because I have just the story for you. When most of us think about tackling climate change, we think about mitigation, cutting our carbon emissions to reduce greenhouse gases. We don't think about climate change adaptation, taking action to minimize the impacts of things like wildfires, sea level rise, heat domes, and severe storms that are caused by climate change. That's largely because, as a society, we haven't done any capacity building around adaptation to help us understand what it is, how it affects us, and what we can do about it. In 2019, higher education innovators Vivian Forsman, Robin Cox, and the team at the Adaptation Learning Network set out to change all that through a three-and-a-half-year federally funded program at Royal Roads University in British Columbia. Going in, they knew that getting people excited about adaptation would be tough. It's a complex, unfamiliar topic. But they didn't realize that they were going to have to design whole new ways to do professional education in a world where issues from COVID to diversity, equity, and inclusion were disrupting higher ed for good. I'm thrilled to have my longtime colleague and friend Vivian Forsman with me here today to talk about how they did it, and I know she has some great stories to share. So, Vivian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Denise. I'm really looking forward to having a great conversation with you today. We've worked together on some really tough projects for, I can't believe it's been almost 20 years, and yet I think it's fair to say that the challenge you took on to build the Adaptation Learning Network with Dr. Robin Cox was perhaps the most critical and most difficult. <laughs> critical and difficult, but also the most affirming, because working in a project focused on climate change in these times of craziness related to climate change is a huge boost that provides energy to get you through a project, even when sometimes the deliverables seem absurd and uh, too difficult to overcome. Working in the climate change space is a huge motivator. That is fantastic. And I'm sure we're going to hear more about that as we get into your story. So let's dive right in. How did this whole thing get started? What was the trigger that kind of set things in motion for you? Well, Denise, as you know, I've got a long background in working in universities and colleges at the intersection of teaching, learning, and curriculum. And my former gig at Royal Roads University was I was the director of the Teaching and Learning Center. And so people at Royal Roads University knew me. 
I left that position in 2017 because I realized I couldn't be a change maker like I wanted to be. And I was getting very frustrated. And I thought, well, this frustration at my stage in life isn't worth it. Let's move on, find some consulting gigs and see what comes. And closing that door became a huge door opener for me because I had great colleagues at Royal Roads who almost immediately reached out to me and said, hey, I need somebody to co-write a proposal. And if we get the funding, you want to play with. And my colleague, Dr. Robin Cox, was the person that reached out. And she had this really interesting opportunity where the provincial government, through the Climate Action Secretariat, had approached her because the federal government was allocating funding across the provinces to do climate adaptation capacity building, but the BC government's Climate Action Secretariat didn't have internal capacity to do that in terms of people or purpose, and so they wanted to contract with Dr. Robin Cox to get this thing done. So together, Robin and I wrote a proposal, and it's literally four years almost to the day, Denise, when we were awarded that contract. So I worked, I worked on a gratis basis for three months from September until December or so of 2018 to write this proposal. And then almost immediately, Natural Resources Canada turned around and awarded us the contract, which started in January 2019. So it's an interesting time f- to do this podcast because I have the benefit of looking back over a four-year cycle. So we got the project, and it was a multi-year funded project to basically build training for working professionals on their role in climate change adaptation. So what I mean by that is people that are kind of at the coalface of the climate crisis, people like engineers, biologists, even accountants need upskilling in their role in climate change. And so this was the purpose of the project, to pull together a team that could consult effectively with professional associations and determine what kind of courses would be required for those professional groups within different sectors so that they could feel more confident in taking on the climate crisis. And so we proceeded forward with building a network, collaborating with several post-secondary institutions to build courses, and creating what we called the Climate Adaptation Competency Framework as a tool to align what is required to deal with climate into the different sectors and domains of responsibility. Wow. And I know there's so much more to that, so we're going to unpack that a little bit. And so when we look at this project, you're setting out to, in really simple terms, build capacity of professionals to be prepared to work in adaptation, which is not something that was getting a lot of attention at the time. And so what kinds of problems did you run into when you started to do this work? So when we talk about climate change mitigation, we're talking about the thorny challenge of CO2 and methane emissions, the greenhouse gases that are causing the planet to warm and and which is creating all these downstream very difficult effects of big storms and sea level rise and all the rest of it. So that's mitigation. 
adaptation is the related side of the coin. The way I would describe it is the oh shit, it's happening side of the coin. We have lots of evidence of climate change impacts. I mean, here in British Columbia, where I live, a year ago in November of 2021, we had these wicked storms that brought so much water that it completely flooded out the agricultural area near Vancouver, where many dairy farms were underwater and the highway was covered in water and nobody could get out of Vancouver. And this came literally five months after our wildfire season, which burned all kinds of forest and closed highways, and a heat wave that in Vancouver killed 650 people. So climate adaptation is about how do we prepare for these events? The response to the wicked storms and weather events and permafrost melting and disappearance of the glaciers and all kinds of things that are happening because of all that CO2 in the air. So getting a project underway around climate adaptation, right from the get-go, there was this issue of trying to explain how do we prepare for these wicked climate events. So here's just a couple of examples of, you know, where the vector of this support for working professionals goes. Um, Engineers, as part of what their education has been for time eternal in schools of applied science and universities, they have used historical data to design a bridge or a building or a dam. And as these climate impacts have increased, we realize that engineers need to use climate data to do their design work so that they can anticipate what's going to happen no longer in 100 years, but perhaps in the next five to 10. So just within the engineering community, we worked very closely on this project with uh, Engineers Canada, which is the professional association representing engineers across the country, and more locally in British Columbia, engineers and geoscientists of British Columbia. And we had lots of conversations and dialogue with that group to determine, you know, what already exists to train up engineers to deal with design and build of infrastructure as it relates to climate and what's missing, what do we need? So that's just one example of many of involving existing professional associations to help determine where is your professional community at with understanding climate change impacts and climate adaptation and what kind of training do they need to take this on since, like I said earlier, these working professionals are pretty much at the coal face of a lot of climate change impacts. So we did a lot of consultation to determine what the current state was with training on these issues and what was needed. It sounds like as you went forward in the project, this ability to convene and to tap into and to build community almost became one of the superpowers of the team. It's interesting that you say that because that's exactly what it was, was convening lots of conversations at many levels within professional associations, within government, and within the community at large. When we got started on the project, I had no idea that the line item in our budget around communications was going to become really one of the biggest parts of the work. And of course, when we anticipated the project with the budget we submitted originally, we hadn't put enough dollars on that line item that would support what was really required. 
We quickly moved into website development to describe what we were doing. We moved into creating uh, social media channels through LinkedIn and Twitter. We had to create a newsletter and a team that could publish articles on a monthly basis to keep people engaged. So a great deal of this project was communicating the importance of preparation for climate change impacts. I love the the way that you responded to this and this recognition that when we write proposals and we develop projects and we develop budgets, we're just guessing at what's going to happen in the future. We don't really know what we're going to need down the road. So I'm just curious for people who find themselves in that kind of situation, how were you able to adapt your budget? How did you find the money to be able to do that work once you realized how important it was? Well, I think there were two key elements of it. One is if you will, robbing Peter to pay Paul on different line items of the budget where we, you know, reduced spend in certain areas. In one place, we were fortunate in a, in a kind of backhanded way because COVID hit, nobody was traveling and we did have a travel budget. So everything that was in that line item moved over into communications and we found other ways and other little pockets of money external to the original budget to amp up all this communication stuff. And then, quite frankly, uh, a lot of it became unpaid work for the people that were on the project. You know, people were being paid on a deliverables basis with a scope that was far less than what the work was really requiring. And I know that everybody that worked on the Adaptation Learning Network put in more hours to get the job done than was originally anticipated. Again, I think people were motivated through purpose, but that's not really good enough in terms of anticipating. I think your comment about how we create a budget and then we have to live into it and lean into it is such an interesting challenge. And I read an article this week actually about how procurement is the uneven crack where the light does not get in. And that in the classic stages of responding to an RFP, writing a proposal with a budget, without the flexibility to really deal with the emergent stuff over a period of three and a half years, is always a challenge in these kinds of initiatives. I think that's a really powerful insight. And I would suggest that as we continue to go forward and try to tackle these big complex issues like climate change, where we really have no clue in many cases what the answer is or what the future is going to look like. We need to, and this comes to more of a system change lens, but we need to change the way that we're requesting and supporting and funding that work. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other piece of it, and this is an issue that certainly far precedes trying to deal with a climate change project, but It goes back to fostering a deep and collaborative relationship with your funders. And we invested heavily in working with our funding partners at Natural Resources Canada and the BC Climate Action Secretariat, not just with your standard monthly status reporting mechanisms, but frequent open collaborative conversations to help guide the changes that were required in this project. And in fairness to both funders, they came up with additional funding at various points. And I really appreciate the emphasis that you placed on that. And I think that's something 
again, coming back to this role of convening and what does leadership actually look like? I think that's an important part of it. So I, I want to shift gears a little bit because I know a big part of the work that you did was within the post-secondary system. So tell me about that piece of the work. So right from the get-go, we wanted to plant seeds in multiple post-secondary institutions to begin to get them to develop their own suite of courses through their continuing studies department, whereby working professionals, just working people, let's not even call them professionals, could have access to short courses to better understand what their role might be in the climate crisis. So we farmed out the money that we got from Natural Resources Canada to six different post-secondary institutions in British Columbia with uh, contracts to basically develop courses. And we guided them on the topics for the courses because we had done all this front-end consultation with professional associations. And we had netted out originally 40 courses that this community of professional associations felt they needed, but we were only funded to build 10 courses. And so we had to go through a process of elimination. And we asked the post-secondary institutions to choose topic areas that they had internal subject matter expertise in order to develop. And so we ended up with six post-secondary institutions developing courses. Now, that makes it all sound simple and easy. Nothing in terms of collaboration in the post-secondary community is ever simple. Because first of all, there's always a little bit of a sense of protecting from competition that goes on in the post-sector. So it was like, why are you, Royal Roads University, a tiny university on Vancouver Island, why are you approaching the big and powerful University of British Columbia to work with you to build courses? And so like anything, lots of conversations, lots of deliberations, and lots of, if you will, hunting for the right people at the right moment that would say, hey, this does sound interesting. I'm going to put aside my particular university interests and doing this just for perhaps University of British Columbia and instead dive into a collective enterprise. So, you know, I can't even recount the number of conversations that I had with various people at University of British Columbia to find the right people that we could build a collaboration to build a course. Ultimately, we found that in the Faculty of Forestry at UBC because they were doing some innovative things themselves with beginning to consider developing courses for uh, people in the forestry and engineering community that were already in those communities. So we finally found somebody, but this was not easy. I probably can count 50 conversations that were required just to land on that particular community. So just even finding the right people that could move with it was a challenge. Once we got underway with these multiple post-secondary institutions, we were working through their continuing studies departments. And I think a big lesson learned for me is that in the post-secondary sector, there are no two continuing studies departments in this province or in this country or anywhere that operate in the same way. They have different reporting structures, different purposes, different technologies that are at different levels of maturity. And so when we went into this, I had the naive assumption 
that we would be able to farm out this curriculum development and everybody would come back with a pretty course in a learning management system and they would know how to market it. Well, (laughs) that was not the case. First of all, even as this project was underway and COVID happened, I guess one of the major impediments was all of a sudden entire universities were having to pivot to online learning because of COVID and their continuing studies departments just weren't ready for this and they got left behind in the pivot to online learning. And so we had to drop a few of our post-secondary partners because the pressures that were underway with the COVID remote learning and their already existing somewhat immaturity on having online courses meant that they just couldn't keep up. So those are just a couple of examples of the structural issues we faced with trying to get multiple post-secondary institutions all on board with common practices, processes, and enabling technologies. Yeah, I can only imagine how complex that was. And then when we look at, you know, we talked about the budget and we talked about the challenges of adapting the budget as you moved along. So the third pillar of your proposal was this competency framework. So tell me about how that unfolded. Well, that was just one big multi-year headache. (laughs) So quite honestly, prior to this project, I'd never considered what a competency framework is or could be or anything. And in retrospect, it's interesting because I've worked in teaching and learning centers for many, many years where we coach our faculty to define learning outcomes for their courses about what a learner needs to be able to do once they've completed this course. And I'd never even associated the obvious that a learning outcome is really foundational to a competency. And it's just different language, I think, coming at these complicated things in different ways. So anyway, my colleague, Dr. Robin Cox, right from the get-go, was adamant that in order to build courses for working professionals, we would have to define the kinds of competencies that these working professionals would need and build our courses to align with that. Now, of course, one of the thorny issues is that everything had to happen at once. So we're in the business of contracting with various continuing studies departments to build courses, but we haven't completed the competency framework. In fact, we hadn't even started it, quite frankly. And so we had that famous complication of projects where everything has to happen at once, but in fact, to do it well, you need to have completed a competency framework before you start building courses. Well, that was not going to be possible because we only had a three and a half year runway. Anyway, to build the competency framework, we went global. And we identified about 60 climate adaptation experts worldwide that we interviewed to try to tease out what are the competencies required to be effective in this climate adaptation space. And, you know, the competencies are actually quite universal. It's listening skills. It's convening skills. It's dealing with complexity And that everything that we do in the climate change space has downstream effect on something else. So in building the competency framework, the conversation got very rich, very fast, and very difficult to try to distill into a competency framework for multiple professions 
that was accessible in a way that people could understand what it meant to them personally. That project took two years to publish our version one of the Climate Adaptation Competency Framework. When we kicked off that initiative, I think Robin and I thought it would take six months, and it took 24 months. And so by the time we published the Climate Adaptation Competency Framework, we were already running courses. And so we went back into the courses to see, to try to retrofit whether we had an alignment between the course learning outcomes and these competencies. And there was a lot of mismatch that we found evidence of. But by that time, we're two and a half years into a three and a half year project. And so there was not really an opportunity to do a major retrofit of the existing courses to align with the competency framework. Now, in fairness, the courses that were developed by each of these POSECs has high quality subject matter expertise, resources, and learning outcomes. And in the big picture of life, I think I would be open to say we fudged our way through this. But in a perfect world, we should have completed the competency framework before we began the course development. Meanwhile, the competency framework took on a life of its own in other ways. We realized we needed to test it in real-life scenarios with consulting firms, as an example, to see if it resonated. We learned a lot by running early-stage testing of this framework, and that has resulted in going back for additional funding to renew this competency framework so that it's much more applicable in workplace environments. So like so many of these complex documents and frameworks, they are very iterative. And I would say we're at version 1.5 right now, and it'll take a community till version 4.0 to actually create an accessible climate adaptation competency framework that's actually usable within consulting firms and other environments that people are doing climate adaptation. And I would guess it's something that will need to be continually updated as our expertise and our knowledge and our understanding grow. Yeah. Yeah. And then looking at this from going up a level to look at it from a system change lens, because I know you worked a lot with your partners, with other organizations, with other communities. What would you say your impact was in terms of moving knowledge and understanding and uh, political will for climate adaptation along? Well, you know, I want to go back to the beginning where I was writing a proposal about capacity building. And quite honestly, even though I've worked in education and training for 25 years of my career, I don't think I'd ever really thought of it as capacity building. And certainly the journey of this project made me deeply understand that systemic and societal shifts require a major commitment in capacity building. This project was a wake-up call that the major transformation that we need to affect in our society to take on the climate crisis requires capacity building in every nook and cranny and that we don't just have effective mitigation or adaptation strategies and actions 
unless we've educated and trained people and supported them in building their own communities of practice to learn from each other as the ways and means of taking on these wicked problems. Yes, I love that. So thank you for that. So I want to come back to the beginning of the conversation where you left your full-time job at Royal Roads because you wanted to be a change maker. And here you are several years later, having given a big chunk of your life to making change through this project. And I just wonder, what do you think was the biggest secret to your personal success on this project? Well, I guess I'm like a dog with a bone. And once I get started on something, I continue. But I think the important thing for me, and it's the lesson for all of us, is that we don't have to stand by and wring our hands and go, what can I do about climate change? In every nook and cranny of every profession and in every vocation, there's stuff to be done. And my background was in being a senior administrator in a university, running curriculum development projects on every conceivable topic. But I took that know-how and applied it with a climate lens to creating curriculum that could help change the way we deal with wicked problems. And it's been an empowering experience for me, but also a window into the conversations I have with just about everybody these days. And that is no matter what you do, there's something to be done in your vocation or profession or your community or your discipline is that we all need to pivot to figuring out how to deal with this wicked problem and not just talk about it, but take action. And so I think that's the big takeaway for me. Yeah, I, I love that. That's a fantastic call to action. And and just when, because I worked with you on this project and I know how hard you worked. And so I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the personal toll that it took and how you managed that over the three or four years. Well, Denise, it was a big project. And honestly, I think in the four years that I worked on the project, I never had a legitimate full day off. It, there was far more work than was reasonable for what we used to call a nine to five job. And, you know, we're doing this podcast lit literally five days after I've returned from a five week trip I've just taken to South Africa, which was my rest and recovery from this project. Mm -hmm. And it took five weeks for me to just chill out and recover. But lots of people work on lots of complicated projects and throw their heart and soul at it. So there's nothing unusual with that. I think that there were times when I was exhausted from the effort of the project. But again, the purpose of this project was extremely motivating and has been my North Star for the last four years. And looking ahead? Well, there's more projects on the go. I keep promising to my family and friends that I'll take up some level of retirement, but it never really seems to happen. Here's an example of an incredible project I'm on the brink of doing. The federal government has realized that in order to roll out climate policy within the federal civil service, they're going to need to train up the 245,000 employees of the federal government. And so I'm now involved in a project to help them do that. And I've worked in big universities like University of British Columbia. At that, the time I worked there, there were about 45,000 students. I have never worked on a project to train up 245,000 civil servants. <laughs> so who knows where that takes me, 
But again, the challenge of what we're dealing with is a major motivator, and it opens doors in ways that I would have never expected. And so that's basically the salve for the wound of working so hard. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, last question. So for other people out there who are stuck in the messy middle of innovation, what advice would you have for them? Well, you're part of a big club. I think in any project context, we're always in the push and pull, the tug of war of trying to meet schedules and deliverables with scope that's bigger than what can be fit in little boxes in a Gantt chart. And so I think it's just part of the operating principle. I think the workaround on it is about building community around what you're doing that both supports you as an individual trying to make this kind of significant change, but also you get the activator effect, if you will, of inspiring others. I mean, we called our project inspiring climate action. And really, that was the way we got through it is, yeah, lots of being caught in the middle of innovation. But if you can reframe that as inspiring innovation, it kind of gives you the energy to keep going. That is great advice. And there's so much to be said for positive messaging as we look at issues like climate change. So thank you for that. Vivian, thank you so much for sharing your story and your insights and your expertise. I know there's still more big things to come, even though you're trying to retire. And so I'm looking forward to following your journey. Well, Denise, you've been a part of that journey, and I very much appreciate it. You've brought a context to all that we did in four years about bringing story into what we were doing. And so you too are part of the community that we've built that's been very important. So I feel very honored to participate in this podcast with you. Well, thank you. And uh, let's check in in a year and see where you're at. Will do. You've been listening to The Quest for Good, a story series about how innovators break down barriers to create a better future. If you liked the show, Please subscribe, leave a review, or better yet, share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about how innovation stories can help you develop and sell your big idea, get in touch at denisewithers.com.